0: Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. So for there to be love, there needs to be freedom. And once you have freedom, the possibility of misuse of freedom arises.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, Associate Director of the Institute, and today I have the pleasure of hosting a conversation with Professor Christopher Kayser. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. Nice to see you. So I guess that our careful and very devoted audience remembers that you were already our guest a couple of months ago when we recorded an episode on your latest book, Disputes in Bioethics, and if you've not listened to that episode, I really recommend doing so. But just to refresh the memory of our audience, would you like to say a couple of words about yourself?
0: Sure. I'm a professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University, and I've been teaching there since 1998. And I've also spent some time at other places. I spent a year at Princeton University as a James Madison fellow and uh, spent a year at the University of Cologne, actually two years there as a Fulbright Scholar and spent a year at Catholic University of America, so I've kind of been all over. And I like to do jujitsu. I like oh. to write. I like to be with my family. So that's more than enough information, right? I said you said a couple of words, and that was that was like five sentences at least. So I apologize.
1: Well, so I will only add that he really likes to write, and in fact, he's written by now fifteen books. And I promise you, in front of me, is not at all that old. So I think that the book we discussed, the dispute symbiotic, was the fifteenth. What is coming up next,
0: if I may? Well, I actually have a book coming out in June. Yeah,
1: (laughs) I did not know. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, it's called Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity.
1: Okay, Uh, I promise for a meaningful
0: life. I
1: promise you, our audience will love it. Oh, okay, Uh, we do love Jordan Peterson in general, but yeah, this sounds great. Did you? talk with him for it?
0: Like I've been emailing with him. So I haven't spoken to him, but I've been emailing and he invited me to be on his podcast. So I don't know if that's gonna happen, but I hope okay. And you know, if his health is good. So, I certainly would be happy to be on his podcast. That'd be great.
1: I, I wanna pride ourselves like in our small podcast because we had Father White before Matt Fred did. And we might have had you before Jordan Pearson did. So (laughs) (laughs) we have a good intuition maybe there. Nice. Anyway, (laughs) you're here because you're giving an in-person lecture on abortion and the abortion divide for us. But on this podcast, I wanted to talk to you about another talk that you gave for our undergraduate students for an event that was only reserved to some undergraduate students that applied to our fellowship And to these students, we try to provide some exclusive content only for them and for their formation. And you gave this beautiful talk on what the title was, The Compassion of God and COVID-19. But I would say that it was a talk on the problem of evil, (laughs) which is not exactly the easiest philosophical or theological question, but I'm hoping and, and you agreed before coming here that you could say something for our online audience about that. So, if you, as you did, if you agree to speak about it, I would start with basically the conclusion. So, the question being, does the existence of evil disprove the existence of God? Well, that is a
0: classic question. And as I'm sure you're aware, it's been debated and talked about for centuries and centuries. So, today I'm going to provide a definitive answer that will end all questioning forever. Right. Uh, No, actually, maybe not. Maybe not exactly all (laughs) questions forever. But no, it is really a classic question, and so contemporary philosophers have taken up this question and basically have distinguished two different versions of the problem of evil. So on the one hand, there is what's called the logical problem of evil, and on the other hand, the evidential problem of evil. So the logical version of the problem of evil is this, if God is all-powerful, God can do anything he wants. If God is all-good, everything that God wants to do is good. So if we think God's compassionate, he's all-good and if god is all knowing then he knows all about evil so there seems to be a big problem because obviously there is evil in the world so it seems to follow that either god is not really all powerful he would get rid of evil if he could but he's just lacking the power or maybe god is not all good that he is powerful enough to get rid of all evil but he's not good and compassionate so he doesn't do what he could do or it could be that maybe god is not all knowing and There is evil in the world, and God just is unaware of it. But of course, the view of Muslims, Christians, and Jews is that God is all-powerful, and God is all-good, and God is all-knowing. So there is a kind of puzzle here. So that's the logical problem of evil. And in the talk, what I pointed out is there actually is a consensus among philosophers today that this version of the problem of evil actually fails to show that God does not exist. And the reason it fails is that the premise that if God is all good, he would get rid of all evil presupposes an idea that's highly questionable. And the highly questionable idea is this, must a good agent get rid of all evil that that agent has the power and opportunity to prevent? And when you think about it, it seems that there are many, many cases we can think of where an agent has the power to prevent some suffering or some evil. And yet we would still judge that agent to be a good agent despite not preventing that evil. So let me give you a couple of examples. Dentists, for example, Mm -hmm. an experienced dentist would realize that in some cases, dental procedure that they're going to do will cause suffering for the patient. And yet a good dentist may judge that it's better for the patient to suffer the root canal, let's say, rather than suffer the greater evil and the greater suffering of having an infected mouth and leading to infection of the brain. And frankly, it can lead even to death. So it's not as if the good dentist enjoys inflicting suffering on the patient. In fact, a good dentist tries to avoid that as much as possible. But a good dentist is willing to accept the reality that this dental intervention may cause some suffering for the sake of preventing an even greater suffering like, say, death.
1: So... Okay. And and on these, I think that the natural question that follows is, isn't there a difference between suffering and evil?
0: There is. There is. So one way to think about it is that evil might be defined as a lack of due perfection. And so some evils that people endure are actually not causing suffering. So for instance, let's say right now that I have, there are certain forms of cancer that you're not aware that you have them until shortly before you die right? So there are forms of cancer that basically you feel pretty much okay. And then they discover it maybe only two or three weeks before you die, because maybe you feel a little tired and things like that. So if you had that sort of cancer, what I would say is there's an evil in your body, right? Your body is diseased. And yet three months earlier, you may not be suffering at all because you're not aware of the evil that's in your body. So what is suffering? Suffering would be something that always involves consciousness. That is to say, you can't really be suffering if you're not aware of the pain that's being involved. So you can distinguish, therefore, between evil on the one hand and suffering. Now, normally they overlap. That is to say, characteristically, people experience both evil and suffering. So if you get stabbed, say, obviously there's an evil there in that the knife is in your body and it you know doesn't belong there. So your body experiences a lack of due perfection where your body's not working correctly any longer because the knife has stabbed you and now you're cut. So there's a lack of due perfection. And in that case, it also involves suffering, right? Because if you get stabbed, of course, it's going to hurt and there's going to be pain. But you can differentiate those two things. You can have
1: a case where there is... Suffering, but no evil. I'm thinking of labor, giving birth. It's not evil, right? I mean, we cannot associate the two things. No, that's right. It's painful,
0: but... That's right. You could have suffering where there's no evil. So a woman uh, giving birth, of course, it hurts, but... Is it an evil thing to give birth? Well, no, I think a mother giving birth would typically not say this is evil, but this is great. You know, it's great to have the pregnancy over. It's great to have the baby about to be born. But yes, it is suffering for sure.
1: So I wouldn't want to jump around because I know what you were saying, you know, the pain of the dentist means, you know, that not all suffering is without a reason. And I know that you also gave to our student the different theodicies that try to justify this existence of evil. And I would like you to tell some words about these different theories of why evil should exist. But what I was trying to get at, and then we can go back there, was could we argue that if we believe in a God that is all-knowing and all-good and all-compassionate, and I forgot what the third one was, but that in reality, all suffering is not really evil. Like that one day we will understand and it's all like giving birth?
0: Well, I guess what I would say is that suffering characteristically is evil. That is to say, characteristically, when people go through bad things, it really is bad. So I don't want to deny that. And I think that the trick is to say that something can be bad or evil, it can be suffering. And out of that, something good can come. So just because good can arise out of evil doesn't change the evil into good. And likewise, you can have something good out of which something evil arises. So evil and good have a character, you might say, in themselves, despite the fact that good can come out of evil and evil can come out of good. So let me give some examples to kind of make it more concrete. So you could have someone who goes through a terrible assault and gets beaten up. And out of that, they found an organization like the Guardian Angels that you know fights against crime and helps people be more safe and things like that. And there are many experiences... That people go through that they are bad and there's no getting around it. But out of bad things, sometimes good things arise. And likewise, sometimes out of good things, bad things arise. So you think about a husband and wife making love and they have a baby. Well, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But let's say the baby grows up, the baby turns into Stalin. Okay, well, that's bad, right? He was a bad guy. So I think that we can maintain the idea of Good things being good and bad things being bad but also say that sometimes out of bad things good things arise so with the logical version of the problem of evil the idea is this that god is not doing something evil or bad by in some cases allowing some creatures to suffer or to experience evils and this is what frankly every parent does so i could have totally prevented my children from having any suffering whatsoever and experiencing any evil whatsoever. And well, doing, some
1: parents are trying to do that right yeah, now, right? Yeah.
0: And doing any evil whatsoever. I mean, if I, I could have just not had children and that would have saved them from any suffering they ever would endure. But I'm firmly convinced that parents giving life to children is a good thing. Right. And I'm very glad my parents gave life to me. And I think my kids are glad that, that they're alive, despite the fact that I foreknew and for sure that if we have kids, the kids are going to, suffer and they're going to endure hardship but i'm not therefore a bad agent because i didn't prevent that suffering that i could have prevented i had the power to prevent it by just not having kids but i didn't do that so god isn't the logical version of the problem of evil in other words doesn't prove that a all-knowing all-good all-powerful god doesn't exist because an all-knowing all-powerful all-good god could justifiably allow some evils for the sake of say a greater good Now, you asked me to talk about these theodicies. So there's a number of theodicies that are given. In other words, a theodicy is just a defense of the idea that God is justified in allowing some evils. And I should say before I get into this, uh, that Aquinas at least thinks that God only allows us to suffer evil if it's for our own good. So it's not that we're just a cog in a big machine in that we have to suffer evil for the sake of the greater if good. of someone else. If someone else. But rather, Aquinas' view is that God allows us to suffer for our own good. So it would be akin to, say, a good father or a good mother who might allow their own child to suffer, not, again, for the sake of some kid down the street, but for this child's own good. So let me talk about some of those theodicies. So one of them is the natural evil theodicy. And the basic idea here is that it's possible that god allows some evils for the sake of preserving the good of creation and an example of this would be say that god allows the evil of a lamb being eaten by a lion in order to preserve the good of having lions
1: and can i add of having the lion king that's a great
0: yeah <laughs> great exactly okay. exactly you can add that if you want So lions have a certain nature, right? Lions are carnivores. And that's part of what it is to be a a lion. And if you're going to have carnivores, if those things are going to exist, well, carnivores are meat eaters. So you have to have them eating meat, right? Otherwise, you just don't have carnivores. And so if you're going to have lions, then there's going to be creatures that they eat. And the same thing's true of lambs. Lambs aren't carnivores. They eat grass. But if you're going to have lambs, then you're going to have the grass getting eaten. And so the grass is going to not consciously suffer, of course, but it's going to get eaten up. And that's bad for the grass. And if a lion eats a lamb, well, that's bad for the lamb to get eaten. But it's a good thing, all things considered, to have lions in existence. And I think most people recognize that. I mean, if you say to most people, there's an endangered species of lion. They're about to go extinct. you know, If you press this button, they will not go extinct. They'll continue to live. I think almost everyone would press the button, right? I mean, very few people are like, oh, fine, let's get rid of lions. You know, we'll just have them go extinct. So in order to have the order of creation, where you have carnivores, say, and you have lambs and you have the circle of life, as it were, well, you have the good of one thing, the lion, involving the bad of another thing, namely the lamb. So that's the natural evil theodicy. The free will theodicy is another famous theodicy, and it basically says that God justifiably could allow some evils for the sake of preserving free will. How does this work? Well, there are some evils that arise because of human misuse of freedom. So if you, you know, stab someone with a knife, that is presumably a misuse of human freedom. Now, God could prevent that, right? God could make it so that you don't have freedom. If God did that, what would happen? Well, God could have made it that he just reigned over a kingdom of chemicals, that all there was in creation were rocks and water and whatever. But if there's going to be loving relationships in the world, well, then there has to be freedom because to have real love requires that there's freedom. Exactly. And once you have freedom, it always becomes possible that that freedom is misused. Now, you could say, well, look, Why doesn't God just not give us freedom? Well, again, God could do that, but if God doesn't give us freedom, well, then we aren't free to love God. To
1: love him back, yeah. So it would not be a justification for the kind of God, at least, that we are presupposing, so the the Judeo-Christian vision of God.
0: That's right. And the Judeo-Christian vision of God is a God who is himself loving and desires to have us return that love. And again, if we were not free, we wouldn't even be free to love other human beings, right? We would just have, you know, the way a rock relates to another rock or something. Like, well, that's not really a loving relationship, right? In any sense. So for there to be love, there needs to be freedom. And once you have freedom, the possibility of misuse of freedom arises. That
1: generates evil. And then there was then the punishment theodicy, which I think is the easiest probably to be described, right? That's right. The one that, that is used, I think, in scriptures too, that God will send some evil because the generation behaved poorly. Mm-hmm. But on that, and since we're talking about COVID 19, the first question that would come to mind is Do you see a pandemic as a possible punishment from God? And well, and then I have other questions, but let's get to this one first.
0: Yeah. So the punishment theodicy, just to clarify a little bit what I mean by it. The idea is that it's possible that God allows some evils for the sake of punishment. So it's important to emphasize some evils, because not all evils are punishments. So you have, in other words, in the case of many people dying of COVID-19, cases where innocent people get this, you know, a baby or something. And so I think scripture also is clear that it's not the case that all suffering is the result of punishment, because you have people like Jesus of Nazareth, and at least Catholics believe that Mary also was without sin, who nevertheless, both those people did suffer a lot. And so you can say, well, Mary is suffering or Jesus is suffering because Mary and Jesus, they're they're sinners and they did horrible things. Well, no. I mean, they're suffering that doesn't involve punishment. But the idea here is that some suffering does involve punishment. And a clear example of this would be the suffering that good parents inflict on their own children as just punishments. Now, why do good parents do that? Well, I get my kids in trouble because I think that this is going to help reform them. And the whole point of getting my kids in trouble isn't that, oh, I want them to suffer. I don't want them to suffer, but I get them in trouble because I want them to change and I want them to grow and I hope that the punishment enables them to not repeat you know, the bad actions that they've done. So a just punishment can be good as a way of reforming the one who is getting punished. And just punishments also are good insofar as they protect the whole community so for instance it's a really good thing that say killers are arrested and tried and if they're found guilty you know go to prison because if killers weren't punished and they were just allowed to run wild well more and more people would get killed so it's protecting the whole community to have say killers off the street and get punished and punishment also is a good because it restores the order of justice So if you steal my car and the police chase you down and arrest you and force you to give my car back, that's a good thing, right? You disrupted the order of justice when you stole my car. And if you're forced to give that back to me, that restores the order of justice. And that's a good thing. So a just punishment is a good thing. Now, is it possible that God allows some evils for the sake of a just punishment? Yeah, that's possible. Now, in the case of COVID-19, What I would say is that it would be an overgeneralization to say, well, that's why COVID-19 was allowed. At least if Aquinas is right, the suffering of each individual is tailored to each individual. And what that means basically is that we can't say that, oh, well, this person died of COVID-19 for a punishment, or this person died because of this reason or that reason. We don't really know. So it'd be a little bit like if you're not a medical expert and you're looking at a hospital, you might say oh my gosh this is a horrible place look at all these poor people suffering i mean this person's in surgery and someone's cutting them open this person's getting an IV put in by the nurse and that's horrible and if you looked at it from the outside you might think this is just terrible but if you're a medical expert you realize that at least the good doctors and the good nurses are never
1: intending. inflicting
0: intending suffering to harm the patient mm-hmm. rather everything that goes on in a good hospital is aimed solely for the good of those patients Right? So if this patient needs surgery, obviously you know, that's a tough thing to have to undergo surgery, but it's for that patient's good. And if this other patient needs an IV, well, again, it's not fun to have something stuck in your arm, but it's for that patient's good. And so Aquinas' idea, at least, is that God allows suffering for the sake of the individual who undergoes the suffering. Now, could that be, in some particular cases, a just punishment? It could. Yeah, theoretically, but we couldn't, and I think shouldn't, overgeneralize and say, oh, well, COVID-19, that's just God's punishment. God is you know, angry with the world and sends this to correct the wake world. Wake us up. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that works, at least on Aquinas' view of why God might allow suffering in particular cases.
1: Yeah, I, I hate that English is my second language, because I'm thinking of that quote from C.S. Lewis when he speaks about pain. I think it was something he said when he was speaking on the radio, that we are like a chalk of wood. And pain is like the carpenter or the artist that is cutting that wood to transform us and to make us into the perfect sculpture that our life should be. What that brings to mind to me, and it's a question for you, is do you think that today and my, our generations are simply less used to the idea that living involves suffering? And then there is this tendency of thinking that suffering is necessarily something to be avoided at all costs.
0: I think that is something that some people feel, that suffering is to be avoided at all costs. But I think upon reflection, we can see that suffering is actually instrumentally good in many situations. So suffering allows us in many situations to avoid a greater evil. Think of a child who puts her hand on the stove and then immediately removes it because it's very hot. It actually is good that the child does that. There's a very rare medical condition called chronic insensitivity to pain syndrome. And people that have this condition actually feel no physical suffering. So they could put their hand in the stove and just leave it there and it wouldn't bother them. Cutting off their fingers like you or, or me getting a haircut just doesn't bother them at all. But these people who have the syndrome tend to die before they reach the age of 20 because they injure themselves just terribly and they literally don't feel any pain. So they continue doing whatever is damaging them and many times they end up dying very often they're blind and the reason is that when we have something in our eye we are very careful and very gentle when we touch our eyes because it's so sensitive and we feel great pain if we touch too hard but they don't feel that so they will if something's a little bit in their eye they will scratch their eye basically and blind themselves so no one enjoys suffering but feeling pain actually is instrumentally good in many cases to help us avoid an even greater thing like being blind or even dying And we can see also outside of a physical context how suffering can be good. I imagine many, many people can think about their own lives and think about suffering they've gone through. For instance, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with you when you were in high school and you think, oh my gosh, I was so sad and that was just terrible. But in many cases, you can look back and say, you know, that was sad and I really didn't enjoy that, but... I learned. I learned and I'm really glad that I didn't marry that person, say. Because you realize now, wow, if I had married my high school sweetheart, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we would be, you know, huge trouble right now. We would have gotten divorced and fighting over the kids and it would have been a disaster. So again, it's not to say that suffering by definition is never enjoyable, but in many cases, we can even look at our own lives and look back and say, as hard as that was, I'm glad that, you know, I broke up with my high school sweetheart, right? Because I can see now that it would not have ended well at all. I would personally prefer to have broken up in high school rather than get married, have three kids and you have a horrible divorce and it's a catastrophe. So,
1: Professor, let me close, I think, because we already stole too much of your time today, but it was great, as usual, to have you with us. You decided to talk about the problem of evil and you are a professor, you meet a lot of students, you met them, including, you know, remotely during this year with the pandemic. Let me ask you this, these pandemic, did it somehow decrease the tendency of young students to look for God? Or did it work the opposite way? So does evil really disprove the existence of God? Or does it actually make us look somewhere that is not in this world?
0: Well, there's actually a lot of evidence that times of crisis, including times of pandemics, on average, increase people's willingness to Believe in God and increase their religious practice. Now, during the pandemic, religious practice was suppressed, you might say, for health reasons. In other words, in most parts of the world and certainly in the United States, many churches were closed. But historically speaking, pandemics, world wars, terrible, terrible, terrible things on average actually increase religious participation. In other words, more people are going to church, more people are praying. And I would say in my own experience that I felt that the students seemed more open to the idea of faith, the idea of God than they were, say, prior to the pandemic. Now it's a little bit hard for me to gauge this in part because when you're online, it's harder to see the students and really gauge, you know, more accurately where they're coming from and how they're doing. In person, I find it easier to do that. But I would say that based on the interactions we had, you know, online, that they did seem more more open, I would say, to faith on average than they did prior to the pandemic.
1: Well, that's a helpful thought, I think. And I was wondering if you ever heard the expression of offer it up so that whenever you're experiencing some suffering or pain, that has really no reason. We can still offer it up for ourselves, for our family, for someone else. Does that resonate?
0: Yes, Yes, I have heard of that phrase for sure. Something my mom actually often said to me. Mm. And yeah, it comes from an idea that's found in scripture where Paul says, I make up in my own body the sufferings that are lacking in the body of Christ. So Christians, of course, believe that Jesus suffered on the cross, suffered all the way to death. But Christians also believe that every baptized person is part of the body of Christ. So Christ suffered in his earthly body when he was here on earth, but the body of Christ continues to suffer after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And An indication of this is actually also in the New Testament, where Christ appears to Saul. Saul's knocked off his horse, and a voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's the voice of Jesus. And what Saul has been doing isn't harming the physical body of Christ while it was on earth, but rather harming the body of Christ, the members of the church. So the idea is that all people of faith, all Christians, are parts of the body of Christ. And just as Christ suffered for the sake of redemption, for the sake of our salvation, so too the members of the body of Christ, when they endure suffering, can unite that suffering to the suffering of Christ and thereby do something good and useful and beneficial to others with their suffering. And that's why many people of faith say every morning, the morning offering, they offer up to God all their joys, works, and sufferings of that day for the sake of the well-being of others. And so in that respect, the suffering that people endure can be made meaningful. It can be put to a good purpose, namely of helping others grow closer to God.
1: Well, Professor Kaiser, I don't know how much suffering it costed you to fly to Austin and to give these talks for us, but I can promise you that it's going to the ears of people that need to listen to these words and to all the great work you do. And we do look forward to reading your next book about Jordan Peterson. If you want to tell Jordan Peterson about us, we would be delighted to even have a remote contact. Congratulations for your work and we look forward to having you here again, whenever you want.
0: Great, thank you very much, appreciate it. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends, Please give us a five-star rating, and please donate so we can do even more.